0: Thanks for listening to the Mornings with Carmen LaBurge podcast, made available thanks to support from listeners just like you.
1: Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. If we're gonna fly, we fly like ego.
0: Good morning. Good morning. It's hour two of mornings with Carmen here on the Faith Radio Network. How has the Lord already blessed you today? How has the Lord already blessed you today? All right. You could could just, you know, spend the rest of the day counting the ways in which the Lord has already blessed you. Every spiritual blessing in Christ is yours today. You are blessed. How great is that? Um, I hope that you are interested in intentionally walking in the way of the Lord today because that is also um, a a way to put yourself in a place, um, in a posture where you will experience the blessing of God. Mm -hmm. All right. So um, the Psalms are a wonderful, rich resource. Um, A lot of you have shared with me that Moving through the Psalms with on a regular rhythm is a part of your everyday spiritual practice, um, and so as we were entering into this new year, a couple of you said, "Hey, you know, one of the things that I do is I um, I read intentionally a Psalm every single day, um, and um, in addition to the other passages of Scripture that I'm spending time in, and so I thought, all right, well, let's let's do that. Let's um let's let's do some of that. So Psalm one." Today. Let's spend a few minutes here in Psalm 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on God's law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers not so the wicked. They're like chaff, and the wind blows them away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. So you have to think that um, when God is, you know, organizing his word, what he leads off with in terms of the Psalter, in terms of the Psalms, in terms of the hymn book of the Second Temple period, you know, there's an intentionality to this. So Psalm 1 is here on purpose and for a purpose. So Psalm 1 really does set the tone. There is a distinction made in Psalm 1 among people. There's a dividing line. There are two groups of people, two kinds of people um, described in Psalm 1. What are those two groups of people? Well, the one group is described as blessed, also described as um, righteous, um, prosperous. The other group described um, in various ways as wicked or sinners or mockers, chaff. Yeah, none of these. None of these do we want to be, right? So there is a distinction among people, those who are blessed and those who are wicked, sinners, mockers, unrighteous. The blessed are characterized in one particular way. They delight in the law of the Lord. They meditate on God's word. So what do you delight in? What do you delight in? Does the word of God delight you? Are you drawn to the word of God, not out of obligation, but out of genuine desire? Is it the desire of your heart to meet with God over his word? in his word, which of course leads to the question that we ask every single day, where in the word are you today? Psalm 1 describes how the life of the blessed person is distinct from the life of the wicked person, Um, and one of the things that is described in terms of the blessing that those who walk in the way of the Lord— who stand in the company of God, not in the company of sinners, um, one of the ways that that blessing is described is this: the lord's watch care is over the way of the righteous that that should lead us to think about the blessing that is described in the Old Testament. The Lord bless you and keep you, the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That's the Lord's watch care. That's what the blessed described in Psalm 1. That's the reality they live in. Verse 6, the Lord watches over the way of the righteous. The Lord blesses and keeps them. The Lord makes his face to shine upon them and is gracious to them. The Lord lifts up his countenance upon them. The Lord grants them peace. That's what it means to live a flourishing life of blessing under the watch care of God. Verse 3 is the centerpiece of Psalm uh, 1. The blessed or the righteous person delights in God's word, meditates on it, is like a tree, is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yield its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Now, this is not the prosperity gospel. This is God's good design for human flourishing. This is how we thrive as the people of God. This is the formula for how to live a blessed, abundant, fruitful, righteous life that's pleasing to God. The genuinely good life. I mean, I want that. And you can have it. You can be the blessed person in Psalm 1. You can live as a tree planted by streams of water, yielding good, godly fruit in every season. You can thrive like a tree whose leaf does not wither. The choice is literally yours to make. And what is the source or the supply of that blessed life? Where is the tree planted? By the stream of living water. Planted, immersed, grounded, growing in the word of God. The branch connected to the vine. And the harvest of that righteous life is good fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Are you planted, is your life planted in the stream of living water, the Word of God? Are you going every single day to the well and immersing yourself in God's Word? Are you meditating on it throughout the day? Are you delighting? Are you delighting in the Lord? Yes, there are words of judgment in Psalm 1 as well. And those two are worthy of pondering. But today, let's focus on what it looks like and what it means to be blessed. Our friend Bill English is going to join us next. We're going to talk about the new opportunities that you and I have in this new year to influence people in the places where we work. What would it look like to live out the ethics that do not currently pervade our workplace? What does it look like to walk our faith into our places of work? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Hey, our brother Bill English is back from BibleAndBusiness.com. Happy New Year, Bill.
1: Happy New Year, Carmen. How are you?
0: I'm well. We have a brand new listener named Sherry. She lives in Belleville, Illinois. Want to give her a shout out?
1: Hey, Sherry, how are you? Belleville, Illinois. Is that, you know, I I preached one time in Taylorsville, Illinois. Mm -hmm. I wonder if that's Mm -hmm. near Belleville.
0: I don't know. Now you're going to have me like Googling and, you know, Google mapping. (laughs) I don't know.
1: Well, I got to give you We're, something to do today,
0: right? That's right. So, um, thank you to Sherry's sister-in-law who invited her uh to listen. There you go. That is very cool. We love that. Um, Bill, it is a new year. Every single it one is. of us has new opportunities as a as a believer in Jesus to influence um the places where we work. We can we can either live out biblical kingdom ethics in the places where we work or, you know, <laughs> We could live out worldly worldly ways. Talk with us about um, this, I think, most fundamental issue of, you know, how do we express our Christian values um, in the places where we work?
1: Well, I think in our culture today, most people like to leave politics and religion out of the workplace. I think if you're to talk to the average uh, employee, and frankly, the average employer, uh, the vast majority would say, let's not do politics. Let's not do religion in the workplace. We're here to do a job. Let's just do the job. That's my read on our current culture. So I think, I think first of all, as Christians, we need to remember that we're there to do a job. It's what we're hired to do. The employer owns our time and our work product, and we need to honor that first uh you will then over time i think earn respect and and your witness will be enhanced uh as you consistently put out a high quality of work and you consistently build high quality relationships so it, this is not something where you're going to go in on day 1 and start sharing the gospel with other people i think you know, I just interviewed a new employee yesterday who just came on with us yesterday, first day. If that person was already going around sharing her faith, maybe, maybe she's a Jehovah's witness and she's going around sharing her faith. Um, she wouldn't have lasted it to the end of the day. So, uh, there's a sense in which you have to know why you're at work. You're there to do a job, do the best job that you can. And then, uh, and then, uh, Uh, over time, build really good relationships that can carry the respect so that when you do share your faith, it's shared in the appropriate way, uh, in the appropriate setting, and people will actually uh, listen a little bit.
0: Yeah, I think when you say share your faith, you're talking about, you know, verbally in a, you know, demonstrable, here, you know, here is the gospel of um, of Jesus Christ, or you know, or I guess if your faith is other than Christian, um, it's you sharing verbally in such a way. Um, so when you say share your faith, that's specifically what you're referring to. I think that as Christians, we um, we it's an obligation to uh, share our faith, but in a in a way that is demonstrated as distinct and kingdom minded and so you know do do good work do great work do it with precision do it well do it on time don't rob your employer of uh you know of time or resources or anything else like all of those are a way they're very countercultural in some ways um and there's a demonstration of of concern for not only my employer, in, in that we would all be successful together, but there's a concern for my fellow workers. Um, and all of that is a demonstration of who I am in Christ. Like, I, I, don't, I don't separate my character and ways at work from my character and ways, you know, at home or at church. Like, right, it's about being this like integrated Christian person.
1: Yeah, and that's what I—that's kind of what I was going after. I, I call it God talk. So when I when mm-hmm. I'm sharing my faith, if I would naturally refer to the Lord in church, then I'll naturally refer to the Lord at work. So you know, I might say, "Well, I was you know, you know, where are you going to go on for vacation?" Well, you know, we we we're going to go do a mission trip for vacation because you know, a phrase I use is, "I'm a man of faith." And because I'm a man of faith, I do these things. That kind of phraseology is usually accepted in the workplace, and so I call it my God talk. I don't, um, I don't diminish my God talk in the workplace, but I'm also not out trying to uh, share the complete gospel right away with people.
0: Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, I know that you are um, working on a message that you're going to be delivering on Ephesians chapter six, the first. Uh, nine verses, I was wondering if um, we might, uh, when we come back from the break, maybe we could wander around a little in the passage or the portion of the passage that really does address workers and employees, which, you know, the language of slaves is in here, and that's going to be troublesome and a stumbling block to some people. But we're going to Um, we're going to recognize that we're talking about workers and employees um, and managers here in this passage. So we're going to continue our conversation with Bill English here in just a moment. We're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 to 9. If you want to turn there, we'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. What are some of the things that you find hard to believe? Do you find it hard to believe that God hears you Do you find it hard to believe that God loves you? Do you find it hard to believe that right now God knows how many hairs there are on your head and how many are on your hairbrush? Like, do you sometimes find it hard to believe that God cares about you and the stuff going on in your life right now? My friend Susie Larson wants you to be reminded every single day, every single day, that God is good. Would you like to wake up to the goodness of God? Just text the word good to 877-933-2484. Every single day, you'll get encouraging text messages, prayers, and devotions from Susie Larson right on your phone. Just text the word GOOD to 877-933-2484. Connecting faith to life. Faith Radio. Bill English is here with us from Bibleandbusiness.com. Bill, um, what does Ephesians 6, verses 5 to 9 say, and then how does that help us um, walk our faith out into the places where we work?
1: Yeah, so I'll just read uh, verse 5 first. Bond servants, obey—I'm in the ESV, by the way—obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ— not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. So a couple things there. First of all, we serve our employers with uh, what, what Paul says, fear and trembling. Most scholars look at that as just a, a euphemism for respect, and we do it with a sincere heart the Greek there means the quality of being straightforward in an honest attitude and speech. So the phrase that I'll use when I preach this is candid honesty. Uh, And I may even put in there gracious, candid honesty. Um, And then uh, we don't, we don't serve by way of what the ESV translates as I service or as people pleasers. I service, uh, the Greek there means a person appearing to fulfill his duties only when his employer is physically present. Uh, That's not who we are. We do our work whether the employer is watching us or not, and we do it with the same quality. And the other phrase, people-pleasers, the Greek there just means the intent to satisfy the desires of people rather than God. And so we do our work the same quality whether our employer is watching physically or not, and we uh, do this with the intent of pleasing God. So we obey our employers with the intent of pleasing the Lord first and then pleasing our earthly employers secondly, because we know that God is going to give us a reward in heaven, even if our uh, employers on earth uh, don't reward us. And then he goes on to say, and I, I don't know, Carmen, do you want me to stop here and you want to comment or should I just keep going here? Right.
0: No, I think you're I... on a roll, man. Go.
1: <laughs> okay. Um and then uh and then he says in uh verse 9 masters do the same to them in other words treat your employees with the same respect candid honesty uh with the desire to please the lord first being content with heavenly rewards please your or treat your employees the same way that you expect them to treat you and then he says this is a really interesting phrase he says stop threatening stop your threatening is what he says, knowing that he who is their master and yours is in heaven and and that there's no partiality there. That phrase for employers, stop your threatening, and I'm going to speak as a business owner now, really includes all expressions of contempt or any misuse of the inherent power imbalance that exists between the employer and the employee. So, to my way of thinking, Christian business owners need to be careful, very careful actually, not to treat one's employees unjustly. Uh, for example, we we enforce our policies uniformly and without favoritism. We don't look the other way when our top salesman uh, uh, violates cultural norms. Well, We say, well, yeah, but we need the sales, so we're going to look the other way. No, we don't do that. Um, And I think another one here is that we don't ask our salaried, our exempt employees, uh, I'm sorry, non-exempt employees to work um, uh, 60 to 70 hours a week, week in, week out, because we know that they will. And we know that if they really only worked 40 hours a week, we'd have to go hire another person. And so we're saving money by having somebody uh, create really a very poor work-life balance. Uh, I think that's a disrespectful and demoralizing way uh, to manage people. Uh, The other thing that I will mention is that uh, employers, Christian employers, do not negotiate unfair compensation packages, especially when the employee lacks negotiating power uh, in that transaction. So, uh, there's a lot of employees who just don't have a lot of negotiating power, and the employers have been taught by MBA programs ad infinum to get labor at the lowest cost possible to produce the highest profit possible. I think that's sin. I think it's sin for a Christian business owner to not pay a fair market or a little bit above fair market wage uh, to an employee Simply because the employee lacks the ability to negotiate or lacks the power to negotiate well and advocate for their behalf, i'll also say this i'm going to I'm going to connect another dot here, and I know i'm going to step on some toes here, but in our congregational churches, the congregations are the employers uh for our pastors and our staff, and uh there's going to be a lot of people within the sound of my voice right now who attend church on a regular basis. And you never give $1 towards the ministries or towards the staff salaries of that church. When you enrich yourself by lacking generosity towards God and the church, and then you expect your pastoral staff to take a compensation package that you yourself would never take, that is sin, that is selfishness, and that is something that needs to be um rectified. You need to become generous towards God because that loaf of bread in the store costs your pastor the same as it costs you. That car repair bill costs your pastor the same as it costs you. We shouldn't, through a selfishness and lack of generosity, expect our ministry staff to live on less than what we ourselves would ex- expect to live on. So those are, now that last point, I, I won't be preaching in my church because that would mm. put my <laughs> my ministers <laughs> in an awkward situation, but uh, but this is kind of the gist of what I'll be preaching a week from Sunday.
0: Well, it's true of uh, of our relationship to every ministry. Um, certainly our relationship to the churches of which we are individually members and a part, and, um, and we need to be, at the beginning of this year, you know, we need to be considering um, what does it mean to not just tip like right? Not just, don't just grab you know grab a buck or two out of out of your wallet or your purse um, as the plate goes by, but actually like intentionally consider what does it look like if you've never been a percentage giver? What would it look like to start somewhere? Um, start giving one percent. I mean the 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 idea of a tithe is not dead, um, and so ten percent is the biblical expectation. And that is um, that is not something that the overwhelming majority of people who attend church are doing. In fact, most people who attend church or who benefit from any ministry that is supported by contributions, this would be an example of it. The overwhelming majority of people who benefit from the ministry never give financially to it. Um, and so this is a passage of Scripture where you can recognize that uh, you as the listeners to Faith Radio, you are my employers. You you are my employers. Um, and so if you not only derive a benefit from the ministry, but you have an expectation that when you ask, we're going to pray. When you have a need, we're going to be there with you and for you. Um, that That reciprocal relationship is real. And the way that it is sustained, the way that ministries are sustained, is through financial contributions. And so I do appreciate, Bill, your willingness to go to the hard place in this passage, um, which which is to recognize that um, people who are in ministry are pastors, first and foremost, but every other person in any kind of gospel ministry, um, they need our support. And if Christians don't support gospel ministries and gospel churches, um, then we shouldn't be surprised when that cultural witness um, is, is diminished or goes away because people will have to go do other things in order to take care of their families. Like that's, that's the nature of the way the world works. So I, I appreciate your willingness to go to the hard place um, <clears throat> in this passage. And I think there's a lot here for us. I I highlighted in my own notes it's in terms of managers and those who are in a position of um, of leadership or management over others. Treating Every person in your employee as a real person made in the image yeah. of God. Like, right? Every person right. working under you is a person. Do respect, um, see them as God sees them. They're, that's an eternal, creative, resourceful, gifted, responsible individual. And we ought to be um, managing in a way that, um, that acknowledges that.
1: Yeah, this this mutual respect, this mutual honoring, when you actually look at the larger passage from verses 1 through verses 9, what you find is that honor and respect are woven into both our family relationships and our employment relationships both ways. Fathers to sons, sons to fathers, employees to employers, employers to employees, right? And that honoring and that respect is visceral, to our covenant relationship with God. Because if you go over to Malachi 6, and I know we're over time here, but as a son honors his father and a servant his master, and then God says, well, then if I'm a father, where's my honor? If I'm a master, where's my fear, right? Hmm. If we're supposed to honor our father and our master, even more so God. And so these earthly relationships are a, a pointing to, if I can put it that way, our relationship with God and that relationship with god if 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 you dishonor your parents or you disrespect your uh, employer chances are very good that you are dishonoring and disrespecting god too and you need to get on your knees and confess your sin
0: on that happy note, um, no, on that, oh, honest, sorry. <laughs> on that honest New Year's note, um, thank you, Bill, as always. Uh, that's Bill English. You can find him at BibleAndBusiness.com and uh, and preaching on January 14th where?
1: Uh, at the Maple Grove Evangelical Free Church. It's called The Grove, uh, right. creatively named The Grove, in Maple it. Grove, Minnesota.
0: Awesome. All right. You can catch Bill there uh, on live and in person on January the 14th. Expounding further on Ephesians chapter 6. Hey, um, I know you've noticed, I know you've noticed that there is a rise in incivility. I know you've noticed it. Um, I know you've noticed a coarsening of language. I know that you've noticed a mistreatment of individuals. I know that you've noticed a breakdown in our shared sense of how people should be treated. Um, Our social fabric is fraying. Uh, That is not. Um, a secret to anyone. So how do we recover the soul of civility? How do we turn the tide? How do we become the agents of social grace? More than just good manners, what principles can we actively employ to meaningfully heal our society? Alexandra Hudson joins us next. All right, you have noticed the uh, the breakdown in our social discourse and even in our civility toward one another in general. Alexandra Hudson, Lexi, uh, is here to talk about her new book, The Soul of Civility, Timeless Principles to Heal Society and Ourselves. But I don't want you to think about this um, so much as a book, although it is. I want you to think about this as like a game plan for restoring um, who we are as a civil society. Lexi, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Carmen, it's. I'm thrilled to be with you. Thanks for having me. I'm going to start with um, sort of like what sparked this. What, uh, what sparked this interest in civility or maybe incivility, Um, A lot of people got up this morning thinking about a wide range of things. So um, let's get them thinking about this. What's the difference between politeness and genuine civility?
2: I was raised in a home that was very attentive to manners and social norms my, my mother's called Judy the manners lady so I've come to my interest in this topic honestly um, but I always grew up questioning proprieties and expectations and I well, why do we do things the way we do them and it, and just because is it just because somewhere sometime um, someone some self-appointed authority decided that we should and if so is that the best reason to keep doing it so I was hungered for this this why behind our our social expectations but I generally follow. Of them because my mother said that they would lead to success and work and life and, and school and she was right until I found myself in federal government and there I had I was in this environment of anti-human flourishing all of a sudden it was a very divided time in Washington DC 2017 to 2018 and I, I saw these two extremes on one hand there were people who were polished and poised and polite and on the other hand they were uh, there was this contingent that were um, ruthless and cruel. They had sharp elbows, and and at, at first I thought this this first contingent, the polite contingent. I thought they were my people, but I realized that they these were this was actually a contingent that weaponized politeness and propriety and etiquette to to disarm and undermine. Others that they've perceived as threats or people who, who are in their way. And and so that clarified for me this, this essential distinction between civility and politeness. That that um, politeness is manners, it's etiquette, it's external, it's um it's technique, where civility is internal, it's a disposition of the heart, it's a way of seeing others as our moral equals with dignity and worth, worthy of a bare minimum of respect. Just by virtue of our shared moral status as members of the human community, and that sometimes, actually respecting others requires being impolite, breaking the rules of propriety, engaging in robust debate. Because again, I saw firsthand people who were polite and yet ruthless and cruel. So it's not about what we do; it's about the motivation. It's about why we're doing it and, and how we're actually choosing to respect
0: others. Um, I think it was out of uh, it was out of politeness. It was out of um, etiquette. That um, the priest and um, and Levite passed by the broken person on the side of the road, and it was out of civility that the Samaritan stopped.
2: That's a great, that's a great example, and I, I use the example of Christ in my in my chapter on integrity. I explore integrity and character in my chapter uh, three, and I use the example of Judas Iscariot who used the polite norm of the day to go up and kiss Christ in the garden mm-hmm. of Gethsemane before he betrayed him. <laughs> Whereas Christ, he was, um, he was eager to, dis, uh, to, to dispel politeness and tell hard truths be out of respect. Like he loved the Pharisees. He loved the Sadducees. He loved the sinners that he called out. And, and that was a way of, of not coddling them in their sin, but saying, I love you enough enough to tell you this robust, Truth that may offend you, that may make you upset, but that was the loving, the respectful thing to do. It's so like a whole section of my, in my my book on why Christ is a model for us in 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 why civility matters more than politeness.
0: This is a um, super dupery Christian book, and I love that. Um, and we can talk about it that way on Christian radio. Um, and I I deeply appreciate the time that you spend exploring. Passages of scripture, how they have been co-opted in our political discourse, and how many of us have come to think of um, oh. verses of the Bible or um, or themes from scripture, even big parts of the narrative, uh, and we have in our imagine, in our like civil imagination, we now think of those as American. We no longer. Actually, even understand where they come from or what they mean in context. Can you give us a, a, an example or two of that? Because that was fascinating. Can you say more about what you mean? Well, I'm thinking like uh, a, a city on a hill. Mm-hmm. I'm just, I, you know, I'm just thinking about like we we imagine that that means what Reagan said it meant, and in in reality, like it it means something very specific in scripture. Um, And I'm not saying that it can't be applied to a people or a place today, um, but for us to have, like, completely lost the fact that it even comes from the Bible and has a biblical meaning, like, I think that's a part of the breakdown when Christians engage in um, in the conversations of the day, and we imagine that we know what something means from the Bible because we—because our political commentators have given us— an image of that that is really not drawn from scripture. I don't know. Am I I wandering around too much in that?
2: No, no, no. I think you've identified a really essential problem of our day, both um, in in, in Christian communities, evangelical communities, but also in American society more broadly, is that we're not um, grounded in the wisdom of history, the the, the wisdom of, of tradition, the wisdom of the past. And my book explores... The most important question of our day. How do we flourish across deep difference? And this is um, the defining question of our moment of, of of democracy, in fact, of the classical liberal project that America was founded on, but is actually also the defining human question as well. Because as long as we've been around as, as a species... We have been um, defined by two competing forces: love of others. Like we're doggedly social as a species. God, God said it, it is not good for man to be alone, and it's always been thus. We've always come together in, in community and relationship and friendship. And yet, morally and biologically, we're fallen. We're defined by self-love, and those two facets of who we are our intention, the love of others and love of self. And that is why this is a timeless problem. It's, it's an essential qu- question and problem now. Uh, and, and we feel that. We feel that this is a, a serious problem, um, but it's also a timeless one. And so that's something I do. Like I'm, I'm o- open and honest about who I am um, as a Christian. I, I reference my faith um, throughout the book, but I also uh, believe all truth is God's truth. And I mm-hmm. enjoyed remedying knowledge gaps that I had in different religious, ethical, philosophical, cultural traditions to see people have the same conception of human nature, this battle between the so- social and the selfish, and the need for self-restraint, self governance self-control to overcome a- a- and modes and codes of civility to overcome our self-love so we can flourish and thrive, become fully human in relationship with others. And so to your point, I think that you're absolutely right that we uh, have unwittingly Disconnected ourselves from 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 context from the context Mm -hmm. of 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 our religious tradition of Christian history and I like I I, you know St Augustine is in my first chapter I'm really Mm -hmm. passionate about Christian intellectual tradition that we have this rich and vibrant tradition to draw from that we don't draw from we don't sufficiently draw from but also the broader human narrative of the human experience and so this really is an intellectual history of social norms of this concept of of civility and in fact it was just reviewed yesterday and it, and it's getting it's getting wide um accolades and, 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 um, and, and, and secular, um, attention. Like it was reviewed in the, in the Los Angeles review of books, um, yesterday by a socialist who had, who found some good things to say about it, you know, a secular socialist. And I, and I love that. I love that people from all walks of life are coming to this and finding something that they agree with. Uh, of course I don't, I, you know, I hope no one agrees with absolutely everything. Maybe you do, maybe you agree with everything, Parma, but I'd love <laughs> to hear what you didn't agree with. That would be, that would be fun. Um, but, but that, that, that's why I wrote this book. I hope, and I prayed, that this would be and I, I worked i worked on it for you know almost a decade i know like a decade it be, i know yes that it would be a tool of reconciliation of, of conversation of hope and healing in this broken and divided time that we find ourselves in and christians have a unique role in this in this call to cultural unity and healing and and unfortunately i think and i think this gets to your point just a moment ago too often we're shedding more you know, fostering more more heat than light, and I hope that that my book is part of, um, you know, new year, new new opportunity to to be to to be more um to be more light and be more love and 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 modeling modeling Christ and how we live our lives um in our everyday.
0: So there is um, there's a lot in this book. Uh, Lexi covers the whole history of norms of civility from the epic of Gilgamesh to, uh, well, to Larry David. Um, Along the way, she introduces us to some incredible characters from the social storyline of humanity that um, are going to be new to lots of us. Um, She also gives us some very, very simple, straightforward, frankly fun things to do that would um, fan the flame of simple rebellion. One of those is porching, and we're going to ask her about that next. We're talking with Alexander Hudson, the Soul of Civility, Timeless Principles to Heal Society and Ourselves. She's going to tell us next what, 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 what is porching. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Maybe you've heard that Faith Radio partners with One Child to offer you the opportunity to sponsor a child living in difficult circumstances in a hard place. Well, when you sponsor a child supplying for their needs, you change a life. And when you change the life of one child, you change the world. Your one child learns that God loves them more than they can imagine, and that God's got special plans for their life. Your one child gets help with school and is taught skills like leadership and how to even overcome poverty. Your one child gets nutritious food and vital medical care that can be life-saving. You might not be able to change the world, but you can, in fact, change the life of one child. Meet the kids, find your child at myfaithradio.com. Alexandra Hudson is here. Her book is The Soul of Civility, Timeless Principles to Heal Society and Ourselves. This is um, more than politeness. This is more than manners, although, um, you know, it's it, it's beautifully well said. Um, it is joyful. It's honest. It's robust. It's, it's just sweeping historical perspective as well. Um, so I want you to tell us in a moment about Erasmus of Rotterdam, but I want to ask <laughs> first about porching. What 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 is porching? So porching is uh, a, a practical
2: way to show hospitality, which is a high and noble expression of civility that I explore in my book as a cultural metaphor for how we can each be part of the solution of healing our, our, our broken and divided world right now from right where we are. So I, um, mentioned that I lived in a very, lived through, uh, a very divided time in government in Washington, DC. And I experienced the divisions that we see every day play out on national Television and on social media, I saw that viscerally experienced that personally, and I came home from work one day and said to my husband, "I am done with government. I'm done with D.C." Let's move to Indiana. <laughs> and my husband is from Indiana originally. We had talked about one day moving back to the Midwest. I, I, I'm from the West Coast. I was born in LA, raised in Vancouver, Canada, but we talked about moving um, to the Midwest to be closer to his family. And my husband said to me, okay, done. No take backs. And a few months later, we had moved to made our transition to, to, to Indiana. That was about five years ago, five, six years ago now. And one of my first friends here in Indiana, her name was Joanna Taft. She came up to work up to me after church one afternoon and said, hi, I'm Joanna. Would you like to porch with us sometime? And I had never heard the word porch used as a verb before, but I was curious and we didn't know many people yet in Indianapolis where we live. So we went to her home that afternoon. And what I saw was Joanna staging this social cultural rebellion against our divided and atomized, fractured status quo. She was creating on her front porch an oasis uh, from the division. It, it was it was a, a selection of people across race, across class, across geography, even across politics to to just inhabit a shared space on her front porch and to be seen and known and loved just by virtue of who they were as a human being. And that is radical. It sounds so simple, but it was radical. I, you know, part of the argument of my book is that this is not a new problem. It's a timeless human problem. And yet, one difference today is that it's incredibly easy to go through life physically and virtually and not encounter people that we don't want to encounter. Physically, we know that's true online in these echo chambers that we live in virtually, but physically, you know, we go from home to our cars to the office and back again and we and we have our groceries delivered we have netflix at home we don't really have to encounter people that we don't want to encounter it's just increasingly easy to do that if we leave our home at all so many of us are working remotely right now and so um that's what's so radical about what was happening on 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 joanna's front porch um and that she recognized that she cannot change the world she can't single-handedly you know Flip a switch and and heal our divisions and make our public leaders um, start doing life better together across difference and, and reform the, the the perverse incentives in our in our media culture right now that that reward the incendiary and the inflammatory. But she could change herself, and that in changing herself and making her community better, her family stronger that she might be able to change the world. And I I got a a journalism fellowship to study people like Joanna across the country, and I realized there are thousands of people just like her who are porchers-in-chief. And it's not even really about the porch. The porch really becomes a metaphor for this theory of social change, that you can't change the world, but you can change yourself. It's about how people choose to use what they have. I I met people who hold court at a local coffee shop who – Who use their front lawn? Who who host you know supper clubs in their in their home weekly? And it's just a they they create a space for people to be seen and known and loved, and that in our divided time and broken time, that is what will change our
0: world. There's um there's a woman who um, Paul Perot might have to remind me here. The vertical remember the woman who like just started a ministry in her apartment building, vertical something yeah and then. Vertical yeah. community or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. That one's really cool. And then uh, the turquoise table, Kristen Shell. The gospel comes with a house key, Rosaria Butterfield. Um, you also I love made me book. think, I mean, right? You also made me think yeah. about, um, so <clears throat> I live in Middle Tennessee and maybe like, you know, all good people like your husband. I too was born in Indiana. Um, <laughs> and white tailed deer have this practice of yarding up. And I just think that um, and they do it when it gets cold and there's a little desperation in their community and food is scarce and they 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 have this practice of yarding up. And I just think that we as human beings like we need to yard up from time to time. We need to pool our resources. We need to get together to stay warm. Um, I just I, I loved it. I love this image. I love this sort of simple practice of rebellion um, you're gonna have to come back, Alexandra, because um we're out of time and I didn't get to ask about Erasmus of Rotterdam. Who's a highlight? And He's a hero in my book. Absolutely and Christian history okay. too, yes. Can you can you tell us about him in two minutes? Yes, I can. Challenge Go.
2: accepted, Carmen. Okay, so Erasmus of Rotterdam is this unsung hero in in Christian history, but also intellectual history more broadly as well. He's kind of forgotten. He he kind of um sowed the seeds of the Protestant Reformation that that it it's said that Luther uh, laid the egg, sorry, that, that Erasmus laid the egg that Luther hatched. He was critical of the Catholic Church but never left the Catholic Church. Um, so he's not claimed. He didn't start his own church like Luther, so Protestants don't know of him or claim him. And he was critical of the Catholic Church. so so Catholics don't really claim him either. And he's this brilliant unsung hero of civility and moderation and temperance and grace and joy that I revive in my book. He wrote this book. He was a a true scholar and genius. He translated the Greek New Testament uh, and and found many errors in how the Catholics were were, were teaching and preaching from Scripture, which which the Catholic Church did not like. Um, But he sought fit to write a book on manners for for young boys. He wrote it for a young prince that he was – that he was familiar with a friend of his. And it was an immediate bestseller uh, across Europe. And it it, it was not out of print for like three centuries. This is like wild bestseller. And it's the only etiquette book I know of that um, organizes etiquette tips by body parts. There's a chapter on the eyes, a chapter on the nose, a chapter on, on the mouth. Two lovely lines from his book that I'll, I'll, I'll leave us with. One, he has this great line about washing your hands before dinner. So he was presciently sanitary. Okay, this is before germ theory. But he says, just as you wash your hands before dinner, so you should cleanse your mind of any, you know, pollution from the day. And don't con- just so you don't want to contaminate dinner, you know, physically for, for the people that you're sharing a meal with, you don't want to contaminate them with, you know, with thoughts, like ba- your baggage from the day. So it's like, you know. P- 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 Purify your thoughts before you sit down with others. I love that image. And then his final uh, maxim for etiquette uh, is really kind of the the hallmark of, of true civility, I think. He says, and this is how he ends his book. He says, readily forgive the faults of others and avoid falling short yourself. And I love that because it's such an inverse to what is so easy for us to do today, but also in general in society, which is to blame others and to exonerate ourselves. And so Erasmus, for so many reasons, is this, is this unsung hero of, of, of civility and, and moderation and temperance and, and love of life that I think we should revive today. And he has so much to say about um, about how to just sow seeds of peace and, and love and, and, and culture during a, ve- a very divided time. So pick That's up the so book and, and read the
0: chapter on Erasmus. Yeah. Will you come back? I'd love to. Thanks for having All right. The soul of civility, Alexandra Hudson, and she'll be back. You've been listening to Mornings with Carmen. Have a great day, and God bless. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Carmen LeBurge. Podcasts like this are available because of your support. If it's important to you to hear things that encourage your faith, click the link in the show notes to give now. And thanks.